Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. This episode of Starving for Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Hello listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. Today, I'm so excited to have Gail Walker on the show. Gail Gail is the founder and president of Nantucket Lights, an all-volunteer citizen advocacy group recently formed to combat the growing light pollution on Nantucket, a beloved island off of the coast of Massachusetts. Gail, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. We start every episode with the same request. Would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe? Sure. Um, Good morning, Jane. Good morning. Nice to see you. Yeah. Um, And it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so honored to be invited to your podcast, um, an award-winning podcast, I might mention. Uh, (laughs) Congratulations on your recent award from the National Dark Sky Association. Um, Thank you. I've had a lot of dark sky experiences, but I would say the one that was most awesome uh, was probably when we were living in Egypt and uh, I took the kids camping into the western desert of Egypt. Um, we were over living in Egypt uh, while my husband was a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and to escape the sort of the big city, um, we would go out into the desert with a desert survivalist guide. and. We were away from all lights. I mean, I've never been so remote. Um, Think of the desert you saw in The English Patient, if you saw that movie. I love that movie. So it was was just incredible. And I I just had never seen this dark sky like that. So that that was the most awesome. And it was also awesome because my children were like three and five at the Mm -hmm. time. And so they gained an appreciation of the dark sky too. That's amazing. And I was just on your Facebook page for Nantucket Lights this morning. Um, I think it, what is it? At AC Lights, A-C-K Lights? Is that the yes, handle? Yes, is the, A-C-K is the airport symbol or acronym for Nantucket. So we call it AC for short. Um, I see. At AC Lights, A-C-K. Light, lights, lights, correct? Lights. Perfect. Yes. 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 And I saw there was a book that you were amplifying, which I think was called Stargazer, and it was encouraging kids to look out the window and see this infinite portal. And, I, you know, I think that's, it's one of the losses that I think is larger than we even realize, that when we don't offer this infinity, this moment of exist, existential understanding to small little humans, that it's we're robbing them of that expansion of that possible knowing and also knowing what we don't know. So what was it like seeing your kids react to that night sky? Well, um, it, it was just a joy. I mean, because you, you see it through their eyes um, and to see them in awe, I just felt like a good mother. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and that's, book, I have to say, I immediately bought it for my 
uh, granddaughter who was born just seven weeks ago. And so I, I read it to her at every opportunity I get, even though, of course, she doesn't understand it right now. But mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you got to start um, educating the kids now and getting them on board with this uh, need to preserve our dark skies or we're going to lose it. Yeah. So I was reviewing your career and your career is quite uh, colorful in terms of the work that you've done and where you've done it in the world. Um, And so how did you, so you are a former litigator for the U.S. Department of Justice. How did you begin your work in light pollution? Um, So I retired in 2015 from the Department of Justice and was spending more and more time in the village on Nantucket, where we have a summer home. I'd been going up there for, I think it's 36 years now, but Mm -hmm. had only been able to stay a week or two weeks at a time because of limited vacation. And so when I retired, I started spending more time there and decided to um, get involved with the Civic Association of the little village that where our house is. And when I became on the board of that, light issues, light pollution issues started arising. I mean, um, people in the community were asking the Civic Association, can't you please do something about this? And I was a, you know, eager beaver, new board member and said, I'll take it on. And um, mm-hmm. I really hadn't done anything with light pollution up until that point. And um, I didn't even know that Nantucket had a dark sky ordinance, um, but, mm-hmm. you know, looking into things on behalf of the community, I found that out and just started working with the people of that small community um, on what we called our dark sky initiative. We added information to our website and we started, I started giving um, presentations about it at our civic association meetings and interfacing with the town to help with street lights that were shining in um, people's bedrooms. Um, and that's been going, that that started around 2016. And so I w- was working on light pollution issues, just very hyper locally on Nantucket for, for all these years. And then um, uh, late last year, um, the Nantucket Civic League found out about the work I was doing in Wisconsin and asked me to help them coordinate a public forum on light pollution for the whole island because mm-hmm. um, other um, neighborhoods were complaining about it as well. So I organized that for them and, and that was held in March of this year. And then the reaction to that was just so positive. Um, and it was just clear that there was broad support for doing more to reduce light pollution on the island, across the island, so I was encouraged to expand my efforts beyond the village where I've been working to the whole island. And, um, and so I did. Um, and so I only formed Nantucket Lights this June. It's, it's a, it's a baby wow. organization. Wow. I actually, in all this time working with you um, and listeners, just so you know, so Gail, I think you've called me like three separate times for three separate reasons, um, because the company that I work for, Speclines, we actually are based in Sandwich, Massachusetts, um, and we've done much of the exterior lighting in New England um, for the past 30 years. And so um, it happens to be that not only do I work as a dark sky advocate, but I also work in the lighting industry. And um, that's an interesting thing to be in the lighting industry and advocating for darkness um, all the time. I I feel like I have to wear multiple hats, but my answer Mm -hmm. for any of the conflict is that we need advocates everywhere. Um, And so I'm very happy to bring this message from within the lighting industry. Um, But so it's just funny to have you on the show because we've also been working quite closely on several different projects in Nantucket. Um, And so I don't normally even bring in that aspect of my work to the show. Um, But just listeners, so you know, we have um, actually been working together and it's been really nice because I really believe that Nantucket stands a chance to actually be a leader. Um, As an island off the coast, you have a smaller population to leverage into an idea. And so I'm just so excited about the work that you're doing. Well, and I really Um, appreciate all that you've done to help me, Jane. Um, I'm, I'm relatively new to this, so it's been a steep learning curve. So um, I think you were, um, I learned about you early on and 
immediately start peppering you with questions. Basically, every expert I can, uh, you know, who will talk to me, um, I, I reach out to because it's a huge learning experience for me. Um, but you mentioned Nantucket being a sort of a manageable population. Mm. There's actually special challenges because it's also a summer resort mm-hmm. destination or summer destination mm. for many. The year-round population um, is only around 18,000 is uh, what people estimate. Oh, wow. And in the summer, it can grow to um, normally 50 to 60,000. And during the pandemic last year, it grew, they estimated to 100,000. Wow. So it's, it's one thing to reach out to the, um, the year-round community. Mm-hmm. I think that's the easier part of this. Um, and establishing relationships there. It's so much harder to reach out to people who come for just a short time and aren't necessarily involved in the community or local issues. And Mm -hmm. I have to say, so there's a lot of new building going on in Nantucket because it's been discovered and it became very popular in the pandemic and uh, even more people bought there and are building. And with new homeowners, they really like the uplighting. And it is, you know, I have to say myself, I think it's pretty, um, but totally not good for our dark sky. And how do I reach those people to convince them, please don't do this to our island. I mean, um, I'm, I'm always struck by people buying on Nantucket because of its rural aspect, but then wanting to come and sort of do the opposite of what makes it so special. But uh, we do have so, some special challenges, but I am optimistic. So how is Nantucket rural? Can you just explain maybe the topography of the island a little? Yeah, I wish I could show you a map, but um, Nantucket's an island that's, um, I think it's 18 uh, miles long and three and a half miles wide. Mm. Um, and there's, only, there's one uh, t- town, Nantucket town is the commercial town center. And then there are a lot, then everybody else is scattered around the island. There's a few concentrated uh, residential areas like the village where we have our house, which is um, Saya Sconset, um, people, local people call it Sconset. And then there's Mattaket and Walwinet. There's a few established other areas, but mainly that's scattered around. Um, but the one thing that makes it really rural is um, it's 40% um, conservation land now. It will never be wow. built on. So you have huge areas in the interior um, where where there will be no building on. So it makes it feel very rural. And um, once you get out of the town and, and into some of these communities, it feels it, it can feel very rural. I mean, there's still sand roads getting to some houses, sand dirt mm-hmm. roads. Um, uh, so um, there's no there's um, a height limit, uh, you know, and there's two historic districts. It just, it feels um, in some areas um, there, there's um, farmland. Um, mm-hmm. It just feels rural. Well, it sounds like Nantucket is doing a great job actually preserving. I mean, it reminds me when you say 40% of the island has been preserved. Um, E.O. Wilson is the, the environmentalist who wants us to actually preserve 50% of the planet. So you're already edging up to what EO Wilson is recommending. And um, I mean, that's amazing. But the catch is that communities can actually have all of the right intentions. And then lighting is just this haywire element that gets added, because there's a lack of understanding of its impact and how easy it is to pollute with it. So it's it's funny that there's so much um, advocacy happening to preserve the island's rural state, and then you have this element coming in that, that changes it completely. So you're saying there's a lot of people coming to the island, loving it for its rural nature, but then they're adding lights that are up lights, and, and you're seeing this light added? Yeah, I think that's got to be the explanation. Um, light pollution has increased on Nantucket 2.4% since um, uh, 2012, um, Mm -hmm. which is a little higher, I think, than the global rate. And it's not like there's been um, additional streetlights put in or um, that many more businesses. There's a few more business, bigger businesses that came in. But 
um, most of the growth during that time has been residential. So that's, I mean, that's my guess is that a lot of it's coming from up lighting and pool lighting and flood lighting. You get people building on Tantucket who um, otherwise live in big cities. And so they come kind of with a fear of darkness. It's just sort of an mm. innate fear of darkness thinking, oh, I've got to have flood light. Um, when in fact, Nantucket has a very low crime rate. I mean, we don't even, I shouldn't say this probably on a public podcast, but we don't even lock our doors at night Right. We're in our right. village. Um, it's just, it's not a huge um, concern, but those coming in who don't really understand the community and are new to it, that's their reflexes to put in all this lighting. I mean, I feel that every time I'm from Woodstock, New York, upstate New York, and we do, we don't lock our doors there and we don't lock our cars. And, um, but every time I like have been like urbanized, I go home and I'm like <laughs> hitting the beeper on my car. And I feel like, you know, I, I know the personality that I've become and how far that's changed um, my thinking, but I'm like, I'm not going to leave my car unlocked. So <laughs> I, I, I get that urban to rural kind of transition. It is hard for the city mind to kind of realize. Um, and yeah, I think, I was actually recently posting on Instagram um, the maps and encouraging other people to tag their light pollution map in their corner of the world. But if you look at Boston, uh, it's it's pink and white. That's like those those are the highest colors for light pollution on the lightpollutionmap.info website. And so we don't have night anymore. And I would imagine that there's a lot of people coming from Boston itself to go to Nantucket. So here you have a population that doesn't even know it's lost the night anymore. And then they come and they, they just bring the light with them. Well, also, I guess, hand in hand with that, they come from these big cities and they see Nantucket is still relatively dark. And so they don't think mm -hmm. it's a problem. Um, and so what's it if I light up my house here? You know, we're, we're on a dark island. Um, so I have to first convince people that it is a problem and then convince them that, um, educate them on how we can solve it. Yeah. I, I am also in that convincing role as well. What are the most, uh, common counter arguments that you are up against in your advocacy in the community? Well, the only one I've heard, and it seems to be from a, a minority is that you need all this, um, well, some of the lighting that people complain of, they say they need it for, um, safety. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't, on the residential uplighting, when you point these things out, people don't defend that. I mean, they don't say, oh, no, we need that for safety. Uh, but they might defend, they, they need the floodlights for safety. But there's, um, uh, there, there's some commercial parking lots that I think are overlit that some people would say, mm -hmm. oh, we need all that light for safety. Um, the town has some properties that I think a, a good portion of the community thinks is overlit, but the school, oops, I just revealed it, it's a public school property. Um, they think it's needed for safety. Um, mm -hmm. So on those, um, I am reaching out to um, another expert like yourself who knows the, the Illuminating Engineering Society guidelines mm -hmm. and pointing out that these lights actually far exceed those guidelines. They don't need to be that uh, bright um, for for safety purposes. Um, so that that is that's that's that I suppose is the big pushback um, when it comes to street lighting. Um, I'm involved in discussions with the town about um, converting to LED, and what I hear on that front is well, with our cobblestones and the historic district, we need the bright light so that people, uh, you know can see where they're going and don't trip. Um, so those are the arguments I get. But in general, there's there's uh, widespread support for doing something about it, uh, especially mm -hmm. around the year-round community, because I mean, they, 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 they love Nantucket for what it used to be and want, want it to preserve that. Um, so um, I don't, I really don't get too much pushback. There's widespread support. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's why you have an opportunity at your fingertips here. 
Um, and I, I uh, was on your website today. It's so thorough and um, you've done a great oh, job. Thanks. And um, I know we had talked and you said that you kind of used your, uh, your litigator skills to build a case. Um, so can you talk about how you've been building this case in Nantucket um, to, to, to really harness the positive support you're getting? Because I really believe that because you're an island, um, that you stand a chance to actually be a leader and, and make headway in the East Coast. Because if anyone wants to look for themselves, you can go to lightpollutionmap.info. The East Coast is rife with light pollution. We barely have any dark sky areas at all. So Nantucket could be a leader. Um, and so, yeah, so what are you seeing? Um, how am I building my case? Um, yeah, what are well, you, how are you building just, your case? Just to sort of explain the background of that, I was a litigator for the Justice Department and each case um, had to, a new issue and had to uh, convince a judge or a jury um, to rule in the government's favor. Um, so I'm, I'm approaching it kind of like that. I am trying to um, educate people through like expert testimony, so to speak. Um, you know, I'm not just I'm not just using my own subjective mm -hmm. wishes, ju judgment, like oh, the sky, the sky isn't right. I'm actually trying to use data and experts who know what they're talking about because I don't have the credentials. I'm not I'm not an expert by any means in this. Uh, I'm just a citizen advocate. So I'm trying to present. So whenever a here's an example. So whenever a new study comes out, and lately there's been a lot about the impact of light pollution on wildlife. Mm -hmm. plants and insects included. Um, I post that on post, uh, social media and try to bring attention to that and um, slowly building the case that way. I'm, uh, well, one of the things we're doing is um, we have a bylaw. We have an outdoor lighting bylaw that's considered a dark sky bylaw that was adopted in 2005, but a lot of people didn't know about that. Um, I mean, I, got, I think it got a lot of attention when it was a, when it was adopted, but over time, it's just been forgotten. So mm -hmm. part of building my case, uh, so to speak, is telling like, like this is what this is what you're not allowed to do by the law, the, the regulations on Nantucket, and giving examples of what is in violation of those regulations and an alternative that would be compliant. Um, and building the case, I have to say, when you're a litigator, you sort of have a captive audience. You have a judge mm -hmm. who has to listen to you and, and, take yeah. a, and make a decision based on the competing arguments. Um, I feel like this is a whole new kind of advocacy for me because first I have to get their attention to build the case, you know, get them to mm -hmm. listen to me. And um, Nantucket, like elsewhere, has... Uh, competing problems in some, some cases more urgent. We have uh, huge erosion problems that the town's trying to grapple with, uh, the whole island's trying to grapple with. Affordable housing is a real problem. So um, I have to pace myself because those are, you know, for sure valid concerns that people have to worry about. And I, I so I don't want to uh, insist that this is like the most urgent thing um, mm -hmm. or that this is the only thing they should be focused on because it's not. And so this will be a this will be a slow a slow walk, so to speak. Um, uh, but at every chance I get, I try to point out the harm and then counter that with, well, here's what you can do. Each person can do to uh, to help. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It is a slow burn myself because I also advocate from within the lighting industry. And sometimes I'm just very much wondering why the pace of, of the shift of change of thought, of how we approach this isn't picking up. Um, and I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Maya Angelou's quote, if you know better, you do better. And so I think mm -hmm. slowly we can introduce these ideas um, and hopefully people can. Now you had said that over the pandemic, uh, 
the island swe has swelled to a hundred thousand. So, and there's a housing shortage. So, what is the building strategy? Because that's sort of when you're going to see light pollution come onto the building uh, plans. So, um, what do you know? What's happening with that? As in new buildings, well, new lights, new LEDs, more lighting, more pedestrians, etc. More lights, more people, more lights, basically. More people, more lights. Um, so we do have this outdoor lighting bylaw and mm. the new building should be complying with it. So to address, to sort of capture or to prevent the problems before they start, uh, one thing we're going to be doing is working with um, educating the architects and the landscape designers and the home builders, the tradesmen. Um, mm. And all those people for the most part are part of the year round community. So they're all in favor of dark sky, but they may not have the, the, the materials and the tools to convince a new homeowner what not to do. So I'm, I'm hoping mm -hmm. to address that. But the town, I mean, there's nothing official being done beyond what's already on the books to control building. Um, it's uh, What's happening is there aren't that many open lots are buildable, but very wealthy folks are coming in and buying, you know, maybe older houses, tearing them down and renovating them or adding on to them. And um, that, in part, is what's probably contributing to the affordable housing problem. So it's connected. Um, but, um, yeah, there's this, unfortunately, there's going to be more building and more lights that go along with it, but we hope to convince people to do it in an environmentally responsible way. Um, and I have to say, like Nantucket, they 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 need this. Um, they get a lot from property taxes from these new homes, and that's mm -hmm. what helps pay for the roads right. and the schools and you know all the infrastructure, the Department of Public Works, and all that. So it's a balance. You have to you have to reach you know um so i can't say we, we're not gonna we couldn't possibly oppose all new building that would that would never get us anywhere so what we're doing is like okay build but then light it responsibly right right and i saw you posted the five steps for responsible lighting that the ida and the ies converted um con, uh, collaborated on um and so um, can you talk a little bit more about some of the projects that you're working on um, currently? And I, I will say I really enjoy your your approach, which is that it's uh, crowdsourced. You are actually getting community feedback, which is a great way to engage and then direct your efforts with more oomph. So can you talk about some of the projects you're working on? Sure. Um, so, uh, well, on the residential level, what we did was um, our very first initiative was to create um, and publish a guide for responsible outdoor lighting for residences that's specific to Nantucket. So like, it's, that's why I felt like you have to be hyper local and uh, to appeal to people. Um, and I included information about these five principles that were adopted mm -hmm. by IES and IDA, but also the uh, Nantucket uh, bylaw that they need mm -hmm. to educate people about. So anyway, we, we're distributing those all over the island uh, in collaboration with the Nantucket Civic League, um, trying to get them out through all the civic organizations that um, make up that league. Um, and also, I think we got about 12 um, shops around the island to agree to uh, be a pickup point for them. And so we posted mm. that on our website. Oh, wow. So then to get beyond, so that was sort of tackling the residential, first steps in tackling the residential lighting. And then I wanted to find out, well, where, what do people think are the worst um, sources of pollution that are non-residential? So I did a little poll, asked for feedback on Facebook. There's uh, Nantucket has a, uh, Nantucket year-round community group on Facebook, which has about 8,000 people um, in it. That's the way they communicate with each other. I love it. Um, you always know what's going on if you're part of that group. And it's not yeah. political. It's very local, um, the way Facebook was probably envisioned originally. Anyway, I asked for feedback and um, got a lot of responses on Facebook and, and through email uh, and what they thought. 
And what we're doing is tackling the ones that were, were had the most were most frequently mentioned. And mm-hmm. I already mentioned mm-hmm. the public schools, so I, I that's out the bag. But that public school, the the public school complex came in way ahead of uh, anybody else. And mm-hmm. on that one, we have um, uh, asked a uh, independent outdoor lighting expert from Cambridge to come over and assess those lights and to take measurements uh, because um, the Nantucket bylaw incorporates by reference the IES guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, and they mm-hmm. it actually incorporates, it says it can't exceed like the minimum. They want to be on the lower end of the range recommended by IES. And I didn't know how to take those measurements. I couldn't tell just by mm-hmm. looking at them if they exceeded it. This is going back to my collecting data, like objective data to help build the case. And anyway, um, we were very fortunate that um, uh, someone from um, a very uh, widely respected firm in Cambridge um, was willing to have somebody come over pro bono um, to take mm-hmm. these measurements. Um, and uh, we're in the process of putting together a report, or he's in the process of putting together a report that then I'll present to the to the school officials. And I'm really hoping that with that objective data, that that will convince them to revisit their lighting choices. Um, mm-hmm. Because as you know, um, IES sets these standards that are widely accepted um, as safety standards. And I think, really, I really think the school officials thought they were complying with them, um, but just um, weren't for, you know, they probably didn't have the, uh, the the meter that you need to to measure and so forth. They didn't have an expert guiding them, I'm guessing. So that's one project. Um, another one is, um, I, I feel like I shouldn't name names because. Um, no pressure to name names. Business yeah. Yet. yeah. So <laughs> uh, another uh, business on the island, what came in second place with a lot of complaints. So um, that's the one I've been in touch with you about. As it turned yep. out, Specklines was the one um, that, um, I guess, sourced the, the lights that are there yes. now. And just um, looking, uh, exploring with you options like how to make them more dark sky friendly and really hoping for a solution to that. And um, again, my approach will be, you know, you give me the your recommendation and then I will reach out to the uh, property owner and try to convince them like this is a way you could be um, help preserve our dark skies and still have a safe parking lot. And then there's a few other uh, projects. Um, um, but one that comes to mind wasn't actually named as a problem. So it was a really nice um, surprise, a uh, homeowners association near the airport, well, sort of close to the airport, relatively, uh, actually reached out to me to say, would you partner with us and help us explore making um, the homeowner association owned streetlights more dark sky friendly because they had gotten the message and were totally on board and mm-hmm. want to be a, a help to be a, a, to lead by example. So nobody complained about these lights, um, but wouldn't have even come to my attention. So um, that's another project I'm hoping you'll be able to help with. Um, and let's see. Um, oh, another thing you've helped are going to help me with, I hope is Nantucket mm-hmm. is, um, all over Nantucket are these, uh, so-called onion lights. Yeah. Um, yeah. they're very historic looking. They're, they're, they're meant to look historic looking in Nantucket's an historic community. So everybody has these lights. Um, I think probably the shop manufacturers sell them as Nantucket onion lights. Um, Mm-hmm. But the problem with the onion lights is that the bulb is totally exposed. Now, under our bylaw, if it's above um, 600 lumens, which is about 40 watts incandescent, they're not allowed. But it's going to be really hard to convince people to um, get different fixtures or to necessarily change um, their light bulb to that low. So I had reached out to you and said, is there some, is there some, bigger solution that we could offer them. And I'm hoping you'll help me with that. Um, yes, there is a pro- potentially a lamping solution that would direct from the light bulb itself, the, the light down 
from within right. the, the lamp or the light bulb. So th there may be something that could really get improvement. And that's something I'm that hoping. I often and then, say. And then my yeah. plan yeah. is once you give me the details about that, I'm really hoping one of the, um, the big retailers on the island will agree to partner with us and either give, them, give these light bulbs away or at a substantial discount. Or maybe mm -hmm. we can raise money and give them away. Um, but I'm, I'm really eager to get going with that because that would be a way that then those who are supportive can show that they are supportive. Right, right. And I often say, uh, don't let complexity be a barrier. So, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes the solution is not perfect. So those onion lamps are never going to be dark sky compliant. But you could probably, if you're saying that there's so many residences that have these, a simple solution to change the lamp out could reduce a lot of uplight in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and so, and, and it's funny that, you know, you talk about these projects that, you know, we've all been a part of throughout the years, uh, my company included. Um, and, you know, five years ago, I did, was not on the darkness front at all. I was just embarking upon it. And at that time in the lighting industry, it was all about lumens per watt. And it was all about getting the most efficacy. We'd never seen efficacy like that before. And so the more lumens, the better was the mentality in terms of designing lighting. And I'm sure there's exceptions, but that really was what drove us into this environmental crisis was trying to get more and more lumens out of our fixtures, whether or not we needed it. So it's just funny to see how the arc has come full circle now and that we're trying to really understand how much light we're putting on on projects. And places like schools are really hard because, you know, we're dealing with our beloved children and wanting safety at, at, at you know, there's nothing that we would ever do to compromise the safety of our children. And that that's a beautiful story, but it's not actually the truth of in terms of creating human visibility and um and the counterbalance, because the, the lack is, which I'm sure you, you, you come up with this so often, is people don't know of the consequence of too much light. They know of the consequences of too little light, um, which can be true, but the, the, the other side, that, that counterbalance is not known. So that's why there's so much advocacy needed um, in how we, we light the planet. Now, you are... Um, I, I just also want to circle back, which is you say, you know, you've been convening with experts. Well, I was just on the International Dark Sky Association's global conference. They had 2,300 people, which is a lot. It's a great attendance. But if you think about the amount of people on the planet, it's not that many. And um, so we have this sort of army divided all over the world trying to create advocates you are one such person advocating and what i would say is you're an expert because you're a living thing <laughs> and we all need to uh we all need darkness we all need the skies and so um it's actually people like you that are getting in the trenches that are um as ex as much of an expert as anyone else because Truly, you're kind of remembering how important darkness is and, and becoming a lightning rod for conve conveying that message. So um, well, now you, yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I don't feel like an expert compared to somebody like you or somebody who, who, who um, have, have been in this, involved in this for many years. And I think that's part of the problem is when you start talking about lumens and watts and kelvins and um, color rendering and, you know, all the things I'm learning about um, when we're looking into LED streetlights. It's, it's, a, it's a little daunting. And um, I've been looking into these LED streetlight issues for several years now, and I still feel like I'm learning something. So mm -hmm. I want to be an advocate, but it's, um, it's, it's kind of is a full-time job to, to educate myself, keep up on it, and then explain it in a way that somebody brand new to the subject can understand it. Um, and that, that's a challenge. And that takes me back to my litigating, litigating days. That, I mean, that's what you do. It's like you take complex issues and make them understandable to somebody who has no previous familiarity with it. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to be an expert, but uh, I, I feel like there's still a lot to learn. Yeah, I, it is. I mean, yeah, even 
being in the lighting industry, I will tell you that um, there is still so much research to be done and that we are only scratching on the topic. And, and in the industry, we call it light and health. Um, and But I think that that term even is, you know, limiting because we're, you're only talking about it from the aspect of light. What about darkness and health? Um, so you had said also that uh, Nantucket is lucky to be, be bestowed with a light enforcement officer. Um, can you talk about this role of this officer currently, what you would hope um, that this role could take on? Well, the, um, the creation of this position called the Lighting Enforcement Officer was part of the bylaw that was adopted in 2005. Um, mm -hmm. the, the bylaw actually doesn't spell out the duties. It just says anything beyond, I mean, it doesn't spell it out beyond this person is responsible enforcing the uh, the regulations. Um, mm -hmm. I would like to see the lighting enforcement officer be a little more proactive. Um, the way it's staffed now is uh, with somebody who um, it's, his duties are split between enforcing the, the lighting regulations and other duties. And mm -hmm. um, they uh, the enforcement is what they call complaint-based. He doesn't go out and, you know, patrol areas looking for violations. He will only t uh, investigate and take any action if somebody complains about it. Um, and, of course, if people don't know what the restrictions are, how are they going to know to complain about it? And a lot of people didn't even know he had one. So uh, a lighting enforcement officer, that is. So um, our, our first step, just minimal step is we are asking people to educate themselves about the bylaw, comply with them themselves, educate their neighbors about it, and then as a last resort, report to the lighting enforcement officer. Um, mm -hmm. I would actually rather there be voluntary compliance because um, this guy who holds this position, he has so many other duties, he, he can't possibly uh, spend his, you know, all his time enforcing it. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think I think I would. I think that's one thing we're going to talk to the town about is seeing if this could be um, uh, a dedicated position so that the job is just enforcing the light lighting re restrictions and not split with his other duties, and be more proactive. You know, go out at night and patrol and look for violations, and. Um, one thing about the bylaw that it's hard for people necessarily to know if there's a violation is they talk in terms of foot candles. Well, mm -hmm, not everybody has mm -hmm. a foot candle meter. Um, I certainly mm -hmm. don't. So like you can guess, you know, like that kind of looks bright, but until you wouldn't know the objective measurement, only he could, and he that would be taken at night when the lights are on. Um, so anyway, I'm encouraging people to report suspected violations and take pictures so that, you know at least the picture can indicate some level whether there's a violation or not um, and hopefully get them more involved and I'm also encouraging the town to come up with an easier way to report violations by somewhere on, on the, their website having a um, uh, right now they have a portal for making a service request to the Department of Public Works. So I would like there to be a portal for reporting a suspected lighting violation so that um, they get, it goes into some database and there's some tracking and there could be an annual report at the every year mm. to say, okay, there were this many complaints. We did this many investigations and we found this many violations. We issued this many fines. But of course that mm. adds to the, um, the burden on this this um, this guy who has to do all these other duties. So um, I think it's great that we have a lighting enforcement officer, but I don't necessarily think that's going to solve our problems. Um, we I have to create uh, I have to um, prompt a, a shift in the culture so that they just people mm -hmm. want to comply comply voluntarily. And for that matter, I want them to go beyond what the bylaw now says, because that is outdated. Um, it's not even consistent with the IDA's model lighting ordinance uh, that they adopted mm. in 2011. 
And so we're going to need to to revise it, but I want to revise it in a way that people on their own can figure out how to comply with it themselves and hopefully encourage people just to do the right thing. Anyway, I'm, I'm optimistic because, I, I, again, I think if we can reach these people, my experience has been if you point it out, it's like, oh, I had no idea. You know, of course, of course we um, will, we'll, you know, comply. Um, mm-hmm. So, so well, I'm an optimist, but I really think if we if we strengthen the bylaw and educate people about it, educate people about the harm from overlighting, that the role of this lighting enforcement officer is not the critical part of my puzzle anyway. Right. Well, what I hear is a puzzle that you're putting together piece by piece, and I I, I hear mm-hmm. I see you building the case in with like a a system that's built on a strong foundation piece by piece. And maybe it's not the fastest process, but I see that. And that's why I feel like you have really key pieces. Yes, that lighting enforcement officer has other duties, but the fact that you have someone with that role and that hat on is unique. And you will not see that in every community. And so much of the time, lighting ends up being very unregulated, despite bylaws and ordinances. So there is at least the role to regulate, and that could take off in a stronger direction in the future. So I, I, what I hear in your um, that the foundation that you're building is that it's very strong to suddenly get to that tipping point. We have not reached the tipping point. I do so much grassroots education. I did some with you. We, we worked with students um, to try and talk about light pollution. And I witnessed so many aha moments. And so I'm sure you sort of do too, where people are like, oh, there is a, an, a problem on the other side of too much light, that it, it does have consequence. So I, I see that you're building that case very strongly in your, in, in, and it's only been like four or five months since you've, you know, made it official. Right. Well, another part of the puzzle that I'm going to work on is I really want to get the school kids involved. Because um, mm. you do see those aha moments, especially the kids, the kids get it quicker somehow. Um, so um we're actually thinking of asking, um, I don't know quite how to choose the person, but for there to be a student representative on our steering committee to give that perspective, um, get them involved. I, I think maybe we'll do a, like an art contest or something um, with the younger kids and use that as part of our advertisement. But I think you know part of it is getting the kids educated and then they'll talk to their parents and they'll talk to their kids and they'll grow up and then they'll be more attuned to this so so um but that again only gets to the people who are your rounders um Mm -hmm. still a bit of a challenge to get to the people who um who don't live there year round but we've gotten some really good press coverage and um there in particular there are these two um uh daily or not daily in all cases but um, newsletters by news agencies that are, are that go out either daily or several times a week that I think people who don't have, um, who don't live there year round do read. And so we'll be putting um, ads in that and trying to get them to cover any, any developments, any accomplishments we have. Yeah, it's, it is so nice to be able to amplify that work and get it out um, just to get people to see and feel what you're doing. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask now, Nantucket, you said is a three on the Bortle scale? Um, three or four. Or three or four? It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and for an island that size, that's so rural, it's too high, to be honest. Um, it should be and, lower. But, yeah, it should be lower. Yeah. But I think more of the fear is, is the trajectory because you're a three or four now, but if things keep going, uh, in sort of this blind building with no understanding of the impact of light, it could be, you know, five, which would be way too high for, for an island. And so you are um, in pursuit of making Nantucket a dark skies community. How is that going? Mm. Well, 
um, funny you should mention it because just yesterday I paid the um, the application fee to actually get the process rolling, and um, that's two hundred fifty dollars, um, and it's a two to three year process, as you know. Um, but I feel like I've I laid the enough groundwork that we can now um, start the process, and uh, in part it's because we started a GoFundMe campaign and mm -hmm. have enough. Uh, contributions to buy a sky quality meter so we can start the um, yes. uh, sky quality monitoring program that they require as part of that. And, and I, again, mm -hmm. hope maybe to enlist some students to help with that. Um, so we're at the very beginning stages, but um, I'm kind of excited that we are now in the, in the, in the loop <laughs> and getting IDA's <laughs> help because um, they provide you a roadmap, basically, of how to protect your dark skies, and it'll be great to have their their guidance and the guidance of everybody in the advocacy network. But one of the big challenges is going to be um, revising the the bylaws um, to make it uh, stronger and consistent with what the requirements are of that program. And mm. Nantucket has um, a kind of a different way of of governance, um, all bylaws, regulations are adopted at an annual town meeting. And this was whole process, you have to submit your proposed language by November of the uh, preceding the spring town meeting. Mm. It has to go through all kinds of committees and boards and you have to, you basically have to then go around the whole island lobbying for people to vote for it. Um, so, if the language is too technical, I have to, you know, that it makes it harder to spell. So anyway, absolutely. As a lawyer, I'm hoping my experience, my legal experience, will help draft um, a, a a bylaw, a new bylaw that would meet the requirements of this um, International Dark Sky Community Program, um, and um, and we'll try to get it passed. But that's that's like going to be like a two year process. And then the other big challenge is getting the town to bring its own lights, make its own lights dark sky friendly. They're really good mm -hmm. except for the schools. So I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that um, we can convince them to change, change their lights. And um, anyway, it's, it's a process. It'll be, um, it'll be a long haul, but I mean, we already, I feel like, I could meet a lot of the requirements. I could get the letters of support. I could probably get the some you know elected official to back me. Um, I could meet a lot of the requirements. I could set up the dark sky events you have to have, but um, these other two things are are going to be challenging. So that's why I'm starting now. And yeah, I think if you I were did, to achieve that a dark sky designation I, I correct me if i'm wrong listeners but i think the closest dark sky region to boston is in acadia maine so that's very far off from nantucket and i i mean it would be just such a beacon of darkness that you would be, be able to create and advocate with well there's no reason we shouldn't be i mean if we can tackle these few things and get the the bylaws uh, to to match up with the, the specified requirements. I mean, Nantucket has a heritage of dark skies. I mean, it's always been a place that people came to to see the stars. And there's um, uh, Mariah Mitchell Association has an observatory there that is very respected. They do research of the stars there. Um, so if we can nip this in the bud and meet the technical requirements, I, I really think we can be designated. And um, yeah, it would be exciting. I, I don't think there are any other in Massachusetts, for sure. So we'd be the first one in Massachusetts. And it's a, I mean, uh, maybe you've thought of this, but it's an amazing way to advertise in terms of astrotourism. It would be excellent for business to be able to say, oh, come to Nantucket, the dark sky region closest to Boston. Well, I'd say tourism is not Nantucket's problem. <laughs> we get we oh. have a huge uh, <laughs> tourism here, but That's it would true. be nice that people would come more for the stars than the partying. Um, although, right. you know, it's the you, you have to have the balance. I mean, you know, you have to have these summer uh, tourist dollars to pay again for, you know, help pay for the infrastructure and stuff. So it has to be a balance. But I, I do think we can have both. It can be, you know, a 
a place with great restaurants and great festivals, but you can also have dark, great dark skies. So. so I'm going to change things up a little bit, but you also, we have something in common, which is that we've both lived in India and you did some amazing oh. work in India. Um, you coordinated a multifaceted and unprecedented campaign to educate people about HIV and AIDS. So how did that advocacy help you here and now in Nantucket? Well, that was a much, I would say, ambitious undertaking in a developing country. So I kind of feel like if I can mm -hmm. do something of that magnitude there, I should be able to do it on Nantucket. But, um, you know, advocacy is advocacy. I mean, it's persuading people to support something you believe in and trust you with their money to make changes. Um, but in India, I mean, we ended up coordinating with, um, I was working with a, um, a non international nonprofit organization. So I wasn't doing it on my own, but I was the mm -hmm. uh, program mm -hmm. project manager and mm -hmm. took care of all the logistics. But in the end, we ended up coordinating, I think uh, it was like 500 different organizations, uh, many of which were international organizations. And so we, we just coordinated this, this huge effort. And I would say, I mean, the same skills that made that a success should apply here, you know, just, um, you know, build your case, make a good case for why you, um, what you want to do and why you need somebody's support have clear, you know, uh, ways that people can help be, you know, super organized, persistent, <laughs> um, don't take no for an answer. Um, <laughs> and just, you know, dedicate yourself to it. And that was, um, that took, um, I think that ended up taking three years of my life. Uh, we were there for four years, so three years. And um, I think this one's, this project is going to be as long or longer. So mm -hmm. I hope I can apply some of what I learned there. Um, and again, if I can make the trains run on time in a developing country, surely I can convince <laughs> Nantucketers to uh, use less light. It just seems like it just see, it, it's more, it should be more manageable, even though it feels daunting at the moment. It should be manageable. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking for you that this podcast actually might be a great way to explain what you're doing in one fell swoop for people on Nantucket to help actually advocate. So here we are. Is there anything you want anyone from Nantucket to know um, from this podcast? Well, we would love everybody who wants to uh, preserve Nantucket Dark Skies to, to join our uh, mailing list for starters, because mm. the more supporters we have, the more uh, our elected officials will listen to us, and I think the more impact we will have. Um, we obviously uh, things any campaign like this takes money, and uh, we could use donations. We have a GoFundMe campaign started. Um, it's called Help Preserve Nantucket Starry Night, and. Mm. Uh, the more money, more donations we get, the more we can do. Um, so far, we have enough to buy the, the sky quality meters. Um, I think we have enough to start maybe a bumper sticker campaign, which I think would be cool. Oh, great. Um, uh, we have enough to, to pay uh, uh, for um, maybe some public service announcements. Um, but mainly, I want people who come to Nantucket to just sort of join me in educating themselves, turning down their own lights, making sure their own lights are dark sky friendly, turning them off as much as possible, and having a friendly chat with their, their neighbors. Um, that's what really worked in the village of Sconset, where I said I've been working for the last mm. four or five years on this issue. It's just neighbor to neighbor um, and bringing about a culture change where everybody wants to protect our dark skies and values our dark skies. And just... Um, you know, just helping me educate. That's what I would like. And mm -hmm. um, letting our elected officials know that this is important to them. Um, so that's what I would like them to know. And I hope this reaches well, a lot of people who come in the summer who otherwise I might not be able to reach. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great way to have this burst of info come to people about the work that you're doing. And I think what you are doing is not only important in this case of Nantucket, but that you can also emerge as a model 
um, for how you did this grassroots advocacy and how you built it up. So I'm just appreciative for what you're doing in terms of leading the way of this grassroots advocacy. Um, so thank you so much. And I'm just looking forward to knowing you in this uh, sphere and working with you more. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jane. And let me just end by saying, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I started out without any knowledge. Um, you just have to have sort of the passion and the, the time uh, commitment to it. But I hope other people do take this back and do something in their own communities. That would be that would be wonderful. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jane. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.